0: All right, admit it, you don't pay attention to those pre-flight safety announcements anymore. I don't either, because it's so familiar. Think about the last time you actually listened to what the flight attendant said just before takeoff. It's mostly just background noise that accompanies finally taxiing to the runway for takeoff. The problem with familiarity, of course, is not necessarily that it breeds contempt, but rather that it breeds just that, familiarity. Things we hear regularly, even things that are so important that they could save your life, can become so familiar that we simply stop paying attention. There's a regular part of christian liturgy what's called the summary of the law or the great commandment twenty eight words so important that jesus said every other word in the bible hangs on them that the church has repeated week after week almost without exception year after year decade after decade century after century for millennia. I mean, it feels like time to cue the Charlie Brown adult sound, which, by the way, is my wife's ringtone on my phone, and she knows it. It's just so familiar. But rather than letting these words just fly by this morning, it's good for us to take a deep breath, slow down, and actually pay attention. My primary focus from today's readings, uh, the, the, the gospel reading that Steve read and, and the part of our liturgy, will be Jesus's quotation of Leviticus 19.8. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but it is surrounded by two such weighty statements that we'd be short-sighted to consider it without first considering these. We're in year B of the lectionary cycle, so we're reading through the Gospel of Mark, which is my favorite Gospel, and the shortest of the four, but that's not why it's my favorite. It's believed that Mark was writing to Gentiles in Rome, and because of this outsider audience, his writing can be somewhat abbreviated. It has less detail than Luke and Matthew would. And so, to get a fuller sense of those statements, it's helpful to also consider its parallel in Matthew, where a little more detail is included. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. When Jesus is asked, Which Commandment is greatest. He answered, answers first by quoting to part of today's Old Testament lesson, Deuteronomy 6:5, a verse that would have been recited twice daily, every morning and evening, by every observant Jew, the Shema, which just means listen or hear. Hear, O Israel the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Think about the demand of just that first clause. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. This is not some, but all your affections and devotions. Then add to all your heart and All your soul. In other words, everything that animates your physical and emotional being and all your mind, every thought and intellectual desire. And the weight of God's expectation and claim on us just grows and grows. Then there's loving God with your might. That one is really interesting. The word translated might or strength in Deuteronomy 6.5 Primarily functions as the adverb very in the Old Testament. You know, 298 times actually in the Old Testament it is translated as the word very. In fact, the noun version occurs only here and in one other place. So if the word usually means very, what would it mean to love the Lord your God with all your veriness? The Greek translation of the word is power. The, the Aramaic translation is wealth. And both are pointing in the same direction because the strength or power of a person is not simply who one is, but all that one has at their disposal heart, soul, mind, and strength overlap to cover our entire selves. God is to be loved completely and totally because he and he alone is God and because he has made a covenant of love with his people. In that covenant, God gives himself totally in love to his people and therefore desires his people to give themselves totally in return. So the first weighty statement surrounding the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself is the commandment to love God as the greatest and foremost thing in the entire word of God. The greatest and most important thing you can do is love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Think about the fact of what could flow from that in your own life, your relationships, your work, everything. This precedes it all. The other weighty statement surrounding the command to love your neighbor as yourself is what follows in Matthew 22, 40. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. The word here for depend means are suspended from. So Jesus says everything else in the Bible, in some sense, hangs on these two commandments, the commandments to love God and the commandment to love neighbor. This is fundamental to the origin and design of the entire Bible and God's mission in the world. Those two things to consider, those are the two things to consider before we consider the overwhelming commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves. I say it's overwhelming because the word ourselves seems to demand that every longing that I have for my own safety and health and success and happiness and satisfaction, I now have for that other person as though they were me. As I long for good food when I'm hungry, so I feed my hungry neighbor. As I long for nice clothes for myself so I long for nice clothes for my neighbor. As I desire a comfortable place to live, so I desire a comfortable place to live for my neighbor. As I seek to be safe and secure, so I seek safety and security for my neighbor. As I seek friends for myself, so I'm I'm a friend. To my neighbor, as I want my life to count, so I desire that same significance for my neighbor. As I like to feel welcomed into strange company, so I welcome my neighbor into my company. In other words, my self-seeking becomes the foundational measure of my self-giving. And who's our neighbor? Well, in Leviticus 19:8, the neighbor is identified as one of your people. In other words, fellow Israelites and full converts. But what did Jesus do in the parable of the Good Samaritan? You've heard me say this many times before. If you you can imagine the, the album cover for Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon with the prism and the light shining into it, being refracted into all of its glory. This is what Jesus does with the Old Testament law. He refracts it. Some of it he, he doesn't change at all. Some of it he does away with. Some of it he enlarges. Which he does in telling the parable of the Good Samaritan. I love, I love the old German uh, uh, word for, for neighbor that just basically means the people you can't avoid. In other words, the people you're proximate to. So we, We're not called to love everyone. We can't. But we can love the people we're proximate to. And by the way, if, if I've walked the road. You know this story, this parable. I've walked the road between Jerusalem and Jericho, as I, others have. It's narrow. And you really, literally, this, especially this Levite, would have had to go through great effort to avoid the person lying in the road. Because it's down one way and up another. This is, this, the point of this story is kind of the, the, the antithesis or, or kind of describes some, some ways what's happening in Israel at the time, this thing that we have come to know as othering, which is a, to view or treat a person or a group of people as intrinsically, that's an important word, as intrinsically different from and alien to oneself. And we do that like that today. One of the best books I read in early 2020 was a book called Them by Senator Ben Sass, who's from Nebraska and by the way a St. John's College graduate before he went to Yale Law. By the way I I come from Indiana I mean I don't come from Indiana but we spent 19 years in Indiana which is the most insecure state uh, in the union, so, so we only have jokes about other states, which the one that I learned in Indiana was, do you know what the N on the Nebraska football helmet stands for? Anyone? Knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Ben Sass writes this, something is wrong, and we all know it. American life expectancy is declining for a fourth straight year. Birth rates are dropping. Nearly half of us think the other political party isn't just wrong, they're evil. We're the richest country in history, but we've never been more pessimistic. What's causing the despair? I believe it's that we're so lonely and alone that we can't see straight and it bubbles out as anger. Local communities are collapsing. Across the nation, little leagues are disappearing. Rotary clubs are dwindling. And in all likelihood, we don't even know the neighbor two doors down. Stable families and enduring friendships, life's foundational pillars, are in statistical freefall. And as all this happens, we rally against common enemies so we can feel part of a team. No institutions command widespread public trust, enabling foreign intelligence agencies to use technology to pick the scabs of our toxic divisions. We're in danger of half of us believing a different set of facts than the other half. And the digital revolution throws gas on the fire. There's a path forward. But reversing our decline requires something radical, a rediscovery of real places and human-to-human communities. Even as technology nudges us to become rootless, only a recovery of rootedness can heal our lonely souls. He's not writing to Christians here, but I love what he says in this next sentence. America wants you to be happy. But more urgently, America needs you to love your neighbor. Fixing what's wrong with our world depends on it. And if this is what it takes, then something unimaginably powerful and earth-shaking and reconstructing and overturning and upending will have to happen to our souls. Something supernatural, something well beyond what self-preserving, self enhancing, self-exalting, self-esteeming, self-advancing, and I'm only speaking for myself here. But I know all of us suffer from this. It's It's more than we can do on our own. So before we apply ourselves to such a demand, and as followers of Jesus, we must apply ourselves to this demand, we ought to go back again to those two statements that surround it. Let's start with the second one, Matthew 22, 40. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Jesus didn't have to say that. The guy didn't ask it. He asked what the greatest commandment was. Jesus went beyond what was asked. He seems to want to push both the limits and the centrality of these commandments as much as he can. He has said that the commandment to love God is great and foremost. And he has said the commandment to love your neighbor as you love yourself is like it. That's enough to raise the stakes here about as high as they can be raised. We have the greatest commandment in all Revelation of God, to humanity, to love God. And we have the second greatest, which is like it, the, like the greatest, love your neighbor. There, these are the two commandments from which everything else in Scripture is suspended. But the reality is that fulfilling the law, loving our neighbor as we love ourselves, is something we simply cannot do on our own. It's entirely dependent upon our love for God which is why Jesus arranged it the way that he did. Jesus brought Leviticus 19 together with Deuteronomy 6:5 to show that loving our neighbor is a natural and logical outgrowth or expression of our love for God. These two commandments belong together and they cannot be separated. Foundational church doctrine also points us in that same direction. Today begins a kind of eventful week in the life of the church. Tomorrow is the Feast of All Saints. Tuesday is All Souls Day, the commemoration of the faithful departed. But today is Reformation Sunday. It marks the day 504 years ago on All Hallows' Eve, a.k.a. Halloween, that an obscure Roman Catholic monk named Martin Luther nailed an invitation to theological debate over the practice of indulgences on a church door in Wittenberg, Germany, what's what's come to be known as his 95 Theses. Largely that and the Roman Catholic Church's reaction to it fueled the Protestant Reformation. We'll actually be singing the five solas or if you're a little more of a word nerd, the five sole of the Reformation later. Sola scriptura, by scripture alone. Sola fide, by faith alone. Sola gratia, by grace alone. Solo Christus, through Christ alone. And solo Deo, gloria. Glory to God alone. Basically, everyone agrees that the Roman Catholic Church at the time was in real need of reform. And much good came from it, but much harm came from it too. And much was lost, actually. One of the good things to come out of it was the articulation of the doctrine I just mentioned, sola fide, by faith alone. And it really speaks to the flow of this idea of loving God and out of that of loving our neighbor. It says that Jesus did absolutely everything that was necessary for us to inherit eternal life by his death on the cross, and we need only put our faith in him. And to work to add anything to what Jesus did by any works of our own is both offensive to God and heretical. We absolutely cannot earn eternal life or favor with God by our acts because Jesus has already done that for us. We need only accept his indescribable gift by faith alone. Sola fide. Thanks be to God. And if, if we can only begin to see the magnitude of this gift, we are then moved to do good things. But it is as gratitude for what God has already done in saving us, not as a way of earning anything. We must always bear in mind, and you if you've been around here for any length of time at all, you've heard me say this dozens of times, grace is opposed to earning. It is not opposed to effort. Once we receive God's free gift of love and grace in Jesus by faith, we are properly moved to want to love him back and from the outflow of that love to love our neighbors. Martin Luther wrote, when God in his sheer mercy and without any merit of mine has given me such unspeakable riches, shall I not then freely, joyously, wholeheartedly, unprompted do everything I know that will please him I will give myself as a sort of Christ to my neighbor, as Christ gave himself for me. Once we receive Christ as our Savior, we're made righteous because of His righteousness and not because of anything we have done or can do. So our good works cannot earn God's favor. That favor we already possess, even though we are saints who sometimes sin and can't help sinning. By turning to God in faith as humble people who understand our natures, and by crying out for God's help, we do all that we can simply by acknowledging our helplessness. At this point, in which our faith acknowledges the truth of our situation, we are clothed then only with the righteousness of God. Which, by the way, is exactly why I'm wearing this flowy white thing here. That means absolutely nothing to God. But it does mean something to me, and it ought to mean something to you. It's a symbol that I am clothed with a righteousness that is not my own. As are you. And now it's our gratitude for God for, for this gift of his righteousness and salvation that makes us long to please him with our good works. We do them not out of legalistic duty or out of a hope to earn his favor, but out of sheer gratitude for the favor that we already possess. Loving my neighbor as I love myself is the natural expression of my gratitude and love for God. What are you doing? these days, to form this love of God in you. What are you filling your heart and soul with? Are you reading the Word? Are you reading books that, that nudge you in that direction, listening to music that does the same thing? Are you in a community with people who encourage you toward love of God? Are you, what's in your podcast feed These are things we must think about because everything else in our culture seems to militate against this. Now when Jesus says here that all the law and the prophets depend, literally hang like a man on a cross on love. He is saying that you cannot be said to be loving God no matter how much emotion you gin up if it does not find its expression in practical acts of love for your neighbor. You tell me you love God, great. Show me how you're practically loving your neighbor. And you cannot love your neighbor in the sacrificial way that God intends if you are not loving God as your supreme love law and the prophets are hanging on, depending on something that came before them, namely God's utter passion that that this world, this history of mankind be once again what it ought to be, a world of love to God and radical other-oriented love to each other. I believe it wouldn't be too much to say that all of creation, all of redemption, all of history hang on these two great purposes which means that love is both the root and the goal of the law and the prophets. It is the beginning and the end of why God inspired the scriptures. Jesus is saying all of scripture, all his plans for history, hang on these two great purposes. That God be loved with all our heart and that we love others as we love ourselves. I mean, this is just so mind bendel, bendingly vast and demanding where do we even start well might be a little closer to home than you think harvard sociologist and and i'm giving you these in light of where we are culturally right now with covid and how we have separated ourselves from each other Harvard sociologist Robert Putnam um, says that um, just entertaining at home, having another family into your home for supper uh, from 1975 to the year 2000 fell from 15 times a year to 7 times a year. And in 2019, it had fallen to just under 4 times a year. It means the average person only has people into their home less than four times per year. Forty percent of Americans say that they have no one with whom they can have a conversation about the deep issues of life. In a Roper poll, over one-third of Americans, over 45, say that they are chronically lonely. One-third. I presume that that's not different in Christian communities. So look around. That's a third of us. And these statistics came from before COVID, so post COVID they're only worse. So maybe maybe a place to start isn't isn't as out there as we think. It's maybe it's just here in a community where we where we once again start Practicing hospitality, we actually invite each other into our homes. We actually sit and chat with each other and talk about the deep issues of life without othering the other person. But actually really listening and caring and loving. Practicing hospitality, because what does practice make? It makes habit it makes habit. We become habitual at being hospitable. Loving our neighbors as an outflow of our love for God is the most central and vital thing that we can do and the most demanding. It may not be with the people around us, but it might be with other groups of friends. Start there. But this is why the church comes back to this every week. And probably why the word liturgy means the work, or more precisely, the workout of the people. Church is a kind of gymnasium, and liturgy is its workout regimen drawn into love and worship of the triune God, reciting and reenacting redemptive history together, acknowledging our helplessness, being fed and nourished both by his holy word and by the body and blood of Christ, and then strengthened. Only then we are blessed and sent out into the world to do the work that God has given us to do. Think about it. Every single part of the Bible and every single part of historic Christian liturgy points to this one mission of God, that humans love him with all our heart and that from the overflow of that love, we love our neighbor. That, I think, is something we should pay attention to. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.